Good evening. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to John 17, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's my joy to speak with you tonight on a little bit different topic, uh, on the theme of unity, unity we have in Christ. I appreciate Tom and Jake for their labors and their talks this evening. They've covered a lot of historical and practical issues and a little bit of exegetical issues, and I'm going to do something different and talk more of a theological look at unity specifically for what we have in Christ as found in John 17. Um, Many others in Baptist history, and even as as Jake has done tonight, have looked exegetically like at passages like Acts 15, Um, but tonight we're going to launch into some theology. Um, Let's begin by reading God's word in John 17. Hear the word of our Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that also they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I I made known to them your name, and I will continually, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray to begin our time together. Father, we thank you for the truth that we've read in this gospel. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see it and to know it even more deeply. 
than in our first reading. Help us to know this truth, to know this union, this unity that we have because of our union to the Son. And help us to cherish that and that always be zealous to guard it. In Christ's name, amen. Our passage tonight is a well-known portion of Scripture. Christ has been giving his upper room discourse in the last few chapters. He's about to be dis- de- uh, betrayed in the next chapter. But here in 17, we're given a peek behind the veil. Christ is speaking directly to his Father, speaking in huge theological categories like glory and word and authority and unity and mission. And I'd like to spend our time tonight thinking about what Jesus says about the unity that we have in him. This unity is granted to every believer through their union in Christ. It should mark every believer, every church or association of believers within a local congregation, and it should mark association by extension. And so I have for us four different theological descriptions, four different theological aspects that describe our unity in Christ from this text, and thus also what ought to mark associational unity. Each of these has a fancy theological description, and so when I use a big word, don't, uh, don't, don't zone out too quickly. I'll define what I mean. Um, Break it down and and maybe even a little bit explain why church history has used these words. So let's begin with number one. A first aspect of our unity is that it is nominally revealed. Our unity is nominally revealed. And by nominally, I don't mean it the way you normally hear it used. We might say someone's nominally a Christian, Christian in name only, or nominally a leader. He only is a figurehead. He doesn't actually lead anything. But what I mean is the older use of the word that comes from the Latin root nomine, which means name. So our unity is based upon the revelation of a name, which Jesus has made clear in our text. And look at verse 5 again. Let's see. No, not verse 5. Verse 6, excuse me. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And so what has he done? He's shown the name of the Father to the people. You look down at verse 26 as well. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And so part of Jesus' mission was to reveal the very name of God to the people of God. And, of course, that doesn't merely mean using God's name, saying Yahweh, and then going home. Biblically speaking, to reveal someone's name means to reveal something significant about their essence, about their character, about who God is, and that's a huge part of the mission of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus is one with the Father, a fact attested to throughout this gospel, and by seeing Christ, we see the Father. By believing in the Son, we believe in the Father. By by knowing the Son, we know the Father, and this relates to our unity. We need to remember that the name that is revealed to each and every believer, the name that is spoken into our hearts, the name that brings faith to an otherwise hard and stony heart, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess, is a name that we would not know if it had not been revealed to us. It is a foreign name. This is a supernatural revealing, and it produces a supernatural unity. It is a name and a revealing that comes from outside of us. It is extra nos, our Latin fathers used to say. It is alien. It is foreign to us. And that's what God's people need. They need something from outside of themselves to procure for themselves the salvation that they need. 
And this unity is not produced, it's not revealed to us on the basis of anything inside of ourselves, not on the basis of how great of a preacher we are, how righteous we are, how rigorously academic our theology is, or even how much pedigree our confession might have. No. Our unity is based upon something that's outside of us that we would never have had without the sovereign revealing by God himself and speaking to us his very name. This unity is based on the free working of God, not on our merit. And thus this unity ought to produce genuine humility within us. If it weren't for humility, if it weren't for the, excuse me, the foundation of our unity, right? If, if it's not because of our gifts, it's not because of our ability, our works, it's not because of our righteousness, then in what do we have to boast? In fact, if our unity exists in spite of the sinfulness of our hearts and only because of Christ's sovereign work in revealing his name to us, then we have even less room to boast. Associations will come and go. Individual churches might come and go. So may we never boast in our strength, in our networking skills, in our planning, in our gifts, in our doctrinal purity, but only in the name of the Lord who took initiative to reveal himself to us and therefore grant us the unity that we would never have and can never maintain upon the name built upon any man or woman. Our unity is based on the name of God revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and not on the name of any other man or any other created thing. Our unity is nominally revealed. Secondly, not only is what we have, this unity in Christ from outside of ourselves, but it's also verbally centered. Our unity is verbally centered. Look again at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Now by verbally centered, I mean centered on the words, the Latin verbum. Jesus has given to his people the words that they need, the words that came from the Father. And by receiving them, they have confirmed in their minds and their hearts the truth that the Son has truly come from the Father. It's the word of God that informs the people of God and conforms them to that truth of God. We are unified in and through the word that has been delivered to us, the word that reveals the truth of God to us. For without it, we would be left to drift and wonder and guess as to exactly what truth really is. But because we have received these words from outside of ourselves and we have come to believe that the Son has truly been sent by the Father, we've come to know the truth. We can be unified in that truth. And this word-centered quality of truth is significant for the churches of God. Our unity is not centered upon any other source of authority. Our unity is not contingent upon similar political leanings, as has been mentioned. We're not united because we share certain conservative social values. Our unity is not anchored in any preference, in any strategy or personality or any other source of human allegiances. Our unity is founded upon the word of God that has been given to us from Christ himself in his office as our great high priest, excuse me, great high prophet, proclaiming his word to us. 
Our unity is not only to be centered upon the word, it's also to be grounded upon the word. And both of those realities of word-centered unity should inform how believers act among one another, how churches act among another churches. If the unity we share is centered on the word, then there will be stability to the unity. We won't be swayed and distracted by every wind of change in doctrine. There will be longevity to the unity if it's founded on the word. It will last the test of time. Further, there'll be an edifying quality to the unity because it's founded on God's word. True word-founded unity will be ever encouraging to the saints of God because God's word is the spiritual food that nourishes our souls. And so to go one further step in applying this truth, if God's word is at the center of our unity, then that means that no Christian, no church, and certainly no association has the liberty to adjust the center, to adjust the message of the word of God. We don't have authority to tamper with God's word. We are called to speak where it speaks and called to give liberty where it is silent. Many Christians and institutions and associations have gotten into dangerous waters when they don't proclaim clearly what God has said clearly. Either out of fear of man or a desire to be liked by the world, they'll often edit, tweak, soften, try to otherwise remove the offense from God's law. And I think this is a driving force in the doctrinal shallowness that often characterizes Baptist associations today. Brothers and sisters, we have no authority to adjust the word of our great prophet. He has what he has declared, we must declare with all of its doctrinal integrity without ever shying away from the offense of the cross, which will always offend a fallen world. But not only that, the other end of the spectrum is true today as well. While some shrink from clearly saying what God has made clear, others make the opposite mistake of speaking authoritatively about matters upon which scripture is silent. I believe this is equally damaging and disrespectful to God. Some would risk constraining the consciences of others in ways that Scripture does not constrain and thereby overstep their biblical authority and turn themselves into the very Pharisees that Jesus levies the harshest criticisms against. We must speak where Scripture speaks and be silent where Scripture is silent. If our unity is founded upon God's word, then never let us be guilty of speaking where God is silent. Let us trust the sufficiency and the authority and the power of our great prophet who revealed to us the very words of God that we might be fully equipped and united in our battle against sin and Satan in the world. Our unity is to be verbally centered. Third, not only is our unity nominally revealed and verbally centered, our unity is, big word here, perichoretically informed. Perichoretically informed. I'll spell it for you. P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-T-I-C-A-L-L-Y. Perichoretically informed. I'll explain what that means in a second. But to say it another way is that our unity should be informed by how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Let me explain using some some thoughts from Kevin DeYoung, who happened yesterday to write an article about perichoresis, which is wonderful. It's a recurring theme from the lips of Jesus that the Father dwells in the Son, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, John 14, 10, and 11. 
All that Jesus says in the high priestly prayer is rooted in this reality, that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. The Apostle Paul likewise says in Colossians 1.19 that in the incarnate Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we usually understand these to be about Christ's deity, and rightly so, but they also speak to the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct Persons and they are distinguished respectively by their paternality or paternity, filiation, inspiration. Those are the categories from classical Trinitarian orthodoxy. And yet we must not think of these three persons like three different faces in a yearbook. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Spirit, the Spirit indwells the Father, and you can reverse each one of those pairs. And the Greek term used to describe the eternal mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity is perichoresis, circumincession in Latin. And this is uh, at the risk of putting it into physical terms. We could say that perichoresis means that all three persons occupy the same divine space, Gerald Bray said. In other words, we cannot see God without seeing all three persons together. They are Mutually interpenetrating. They are loving and beloving and beloved at the same time. And this is important. Augustine talks about this in De Trinitate, his work on the Trinity in uh, Book 6, Chapter 10. And so, in sum, the three persons are united in their mutual interpenetration, mutual intercession. They're forever perfectly loving and delighting in each other. They're perfectly honoring and beholding the beauty of each other while sharing the same divine essence. So in verse 11 of our text, Jesus prays that his people would share in the oneness that the Son has with the Father. And of such unity, John Gill, Baptist that we heard about earlier, he writes that this unity is in nature and in will and in affection and in understanding, and that this unity is an abiding together, a cleaving together, a standing fast in one spirit, having the same designs and the same interest of the Redeemer in view and in heart. So the unity of God's people is analogous to union with Christ and analogous to the unity of the Godhead grounds Christian community. Or to say it more succinctly, heavenly unity is both the source and the example for believers. Heavenly unity is both the source and the example for believers. Now, obviously, we don't share in exactly the same kind of unity. We don't share the same divine essence. But there are some principles that we can extrapolate. We can look in an analogous way, in way of an analogy, to help inform our understanding of Christian unity, both within the church and within an association. And so first, notice how unity is essential. It's it's essential. It's inconceivable for the Father and the Son to be separate, to be united, to not be going in the same direction, to be, have competing wills. And so, too, the church of God ought to be jealous, to be zealous fighting for a unity that mimics God's own indivision, his lack of division. If love-based unity marks the divine essence, the persons of the Trinity, then what is proclaimed by an individual or a church that can't stay united? That means that there's some measure of love that's lacking. Some measure of hate has intruded, of self-interest, of selfishness. That's why Scripture speaks clearly and often against division and disunity. Proverbs 6 lists 
division, one who sows discord among the brothers is one of the things that God hates. He hates it. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, and we ought to manifest that essential oneness through unity. Word-centered, love-driven unity is essential. Second, we can see that the divine unity, um, see in the divine unity an illustration of how unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. The goal of a church or of an association can't be to produce more of a particular brand. We're not here to make copies of ourselves as if we are the standard of what the church ought to look like in every context. Rather, the people of God should use and should see the various gifts and talents and strengths of its constituents and praise God for the diversity of gifts that have come through his Holy Spirit's work of gifting. Particular Baptist Benjamin Griffith, who's been mentioned before, wrote a treatise in 1742 called Concerning a True and Orderly Gospel Church, which was adopted by the Philadelphia Association. And speaking on this denominational unity and diversity, Griffith gives us one example of how diverse churches can still be united for mutual edification. He says, Particular congregational churches constituted and organized according to the mind of Christ revealed in the New Testament are all equal in power and dignity and, and have no disparity between them or subordination among them, i.e. unity. He continues, such particular distinct churches agreeing in doctrine and practice may and ought to maintain communion together in many duties which may tend to mutual benefit and edification of the whole. And thereby one church that hath plenty of gifts may and ought, if possible, supply another that lacketh. And so just as each member of the Godhead shares and possesses the same divine essence, and yet each individual person takes on specific roles, we can analogously see that the church has a unity grounded upon shared possession of union with Christ and therefore can diversely serve God and function in different ways without decreasing in dignity or in value. It means some churches will be larger. Some churches will have more money. Some churches will be better gifted. Some will be more effective. But none should feel discouraged and disvalued among the people of God, for we know that our union is grounded in what we have been given and that God is not a haphazard gifter. He knows what he is doing, and we should rejoice in that diversity, seeking to be responsible stewards with the gifts that we've been given while also rejoicing in what God has gifted to other churches and is working through their ministries. Our unity is perichoretically informed or analogous to the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Finally, fourth aspect of unity seen in John 17 is that our unity is to be mission-oriented. Our unity is to be mission-oriented. Oriented. Or we could say that our unity, the unity of the church, the unity of an association should be aimed at the world. Look again at verse 21. Jesus explicitly connects unity and mission. Jesus prays that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, two verses later, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, united that is, so that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you love me. 
I wish I had days to sit and unpack the glory bound up in this verse, but I'll close with a couple of brief observations. Notice first that effectiveness and unity are linked. The effectiveness of a church and its proclamation is linked to the unity of that church. It's true in any human endeavor, but it's especially true in God's people. You can't have a football team that's effective if they don't have a common aim. Any organization that doesn't have a shared vision and a common direction is going to crumble, and churches must be unified in a common task if any lasting kingdom work is to be accomplished. God has so ordered the world that the proclamation of the gospel is the means through which men believe that the Son of God has truly been sent by the Father. But if a church or an association is not united, if it's full of division and strife and anger and bitterness and dissension and all kinds of evil, then the gospel will be obscured. It will be overshadowed. People's ears can become closed by what they see with their eyes. People will be turned off from the gospel because of the incongruity between our lives and our message. If we live lives that contradict the truth being proclaimed with our lips, then people will see hypocrisy. But praise be to God that Christ never spoke a word of truth that he did not live out faithfully. He was always aligned with his actions, with the truth of God. There was no bit of hypocrisy, no bit of incongruity, no divisiveness, no sowing seeds of division. Indeed, praise God that Christ died on the cross for quarrelsome and divisive hypocrites like us. Even though we fail every day, Christ was willing to die in our stead. Even though we preach Christ in obedience with our lips and yet daily fail to love him and keep his commandments, Christ still receives us and forgives us and washes us and restores us and grants us his Holy Spirit in order that we might grow in our obedience to more faithfully align the truth of our lips with the testimony of our lives. May we ever grow in this area. May God ever grow us and redeem us from the trap of hypocrisy so that the eyes of the world would see no contradiction between what we proclaim and how we practice. Second observation that we see from this verse, very simple. It's not about you. It's not about you. A church or an association that gets distracted by personalities and posturing and politicking and promoting will inevitably diminish the unity of the body and ultimately undermine the effectiveness of the mission. If unity is tied to mission success, then disunity is actively undermining the effectiveness of the gospel being proclaimed to the world. You see, too often the mission of the gospel is obscured or impeded because of egos. The emphasis, emphasis goes from gospel advancement to career advancement. It goes from love of neighbor to love of praise. It goes from fear of the Lord to the fear of man. And so in closing, may we ever be on guard against such tempting pitfalls. May we be actively pursuing unity in Christ for the sake of unified mission success. And rather than putting the emphasis inward on ourselves, let us cast our eyes 
heavenward, as has been exhorted by the closing of Tom's sermon and the wonderful quote from Andrew Fuller. Let us cast our eyes heavenward and see again the beauty of our great God and again be refreshed by seeing Christ in all of his glory and thereby be rejuvenated to return to the mission, unified until our earthly labors are complete. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you for the unity we have because of the faithfulness of Christ in the place of sinners like us. Father, help us to love one another well in our churches and in the extended church, in your larger body of Christ. Help us not seek to pursue our own interests, but to lay down our preferences for the sake of seeking to outdo one another and showing honor, just as Paul has exhorted us. Father, we ask you to be with us and to always have the gospel of Christ on our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.